What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It's Friday, July 23rd here. So it's Saturday in Australia, as you guys know. Hopefully there's not going to be or hopefully there will be some interruptions from Olivia's new housemate. <laughs> My new baby. We got a new puppy last week, an eight-week-old golden or yellow Labrador called Daisy. So she is like a real true little baby at the moment. Sleeps, eats, cries. That's about it. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> She's so cute. So naughty as well. Likes to bite and, you know, torment our old dog. So it's all going well. <laughs> <laughs> have they been getting along? They have. Ralph, who's the older dog, he isn't that interested. And there's been a few times where he kind of growls and warns her to leave him alone because she'll bite his tail and do things Be like annoying. that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's all right. From what I've heard, they're meant to do that to kind of assert their authority. But generally, yeah. he's been really, really good. He's very patient and very tolerant of her crazy psycho behavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other names that were in the running were Kiwi and Betty. Because my husband's from New Zealand, so he wanted kiwi or fern because silver fern is a New Zealand thing, which fern would have been cute too. But, yeah, Betty. My mum still calls her Betsy. That was her pick. She's like, hey, Betsy. I'm like, that's not her name. That's what my mum would do with my cats. She would just name, like, call them what she wanted them to be named. So when we saw her, we said Daisy, and it's some people who live down the road from us, they also got one from the same litter, and they called their girl Luna because she's round and white like the moon. That's funny. <laughs> Which is very true. I did like the name Kiwi. I thought yeah, Kiwi was it, it just would have been funny. Maybe the next one. Next one. Ooh, we'll another. Call it little Kiwi. No, like one day, one day, not <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever have a puppy again. I forgot how much work they are. When I had puppies the first time, I had no kids, so it didn't really matter. You know, you could have all the time in the world for this puppy. But now it's so much harder and I'm so much older and t- more tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're a lot of work yeah they are definitely I reckon they're even more work than a baby to start with because generally babies you know I, gen, this is a generalization obviously I've had babies as well but puppies I think require a lot less attention like babies just are happy to sit there and when they're tiny and not do much so yeah pup, puppies need more attention yeah I had a I haven't really had anything too exciting going on. Um, I went wedding dress shopping with my sister yesterday, which is exciting. She's getting married next year, and she probably picked out her dress in, like, record time. It was the first (laughs) one she tried on, and then she tried on a few more, and she was just so in love with the first one that she was like, I just want that one. That's it. (laughs) And it was literally less than, like, 30 minutes. (laughs) That's amazing. The store but people would have been cute. loving that. Easiest sale ever. <laughs> yeah. I I watched Say Yes to the Dress sometimes and I always wondered like if it was true that like, you know, you just like know when it's the one. And that yeah. really was like the one that when she came out was like, wow, it looks so good on her. Like, I the don't other think ones I are all pretty too, but Yeah. I feel like I tried on a few and I had my heart set on another one and they're like, No, no, just try this one, which in the end it actually suited me a lot better than the one I'd picked, I think. So Yeah. Yeah. I guess you get lucky sometimes and just know. Yeah, well, she knew, like, what designer she liked and kind of what style, so she picked out kind of what she thought she'd like already. Yeah. But still, it was very, very quick and not dry. I understand. That's good. Yeah, it was cute, though. She cried and she was like, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really sweet. Yeah. Well, what do we want to talk about next? 
Well, I had a look or I saw an article this week about Alan White. So you guys might remember that we did an episode on Alan White and Jexifolia a few months ago now probably. Um, mm-hmm. Alan's, Alan was missing and his remains were found, I believe, in May, I think it was. Um, and the, all the articles said that because we've been hounding the detective for some updates and finally they replied to someone from the Dallas Voice and they said, Alan's cause of death has not been determined. No new updates to provide. This is still an ongoing investigation. Um, so it's still being investigated by homicide, which I've seen online a lot of people are saying, wow, he definitely was murdered, but I don't think that is the case. I feel like they just don't know how he died, so they're treating it as suspicious until they can determine more. I'm surprised that his body was that badly decomposed. Like, I know it was months, but I feel like there's been other cases where people have been missing for a lot longer and they can still determine it. Yeah. Um, When did he go missing again? October, and then he was found in May. Yeah, so maybe just with, like... I know they said it was quite wet, I think. Like, I feel like there was a lot of rain or... I'm still either suicide or misadventure. I don't think he was murdered. Yeah. I don't know. I'm leaning towards probably not murdered but the family's been no, super quiet no. as well like when they first found his body they were like we're going to find justice and find out who did this to alan and now since that there hasn't been anything so that makes yeah. me think maybe they know a little bit more than we know and there's not too much going on yeah i think that the articles and stuff saying it's like a murder is probably just like bad reporting because nothing's been said officially yet and i think yeah. that homicide's just like still investigating it because they don't so- know one article in it said that it is being investigated by homicide, you know, you're kind of inferring that it must be a murder. But before that, it was being investigated by missing persons. So, of course, it has to be transferred to a death division as such. And, you know, yeah, just because they don't know, I think that's why it's homicide for now. Yeah. So that's kind of a bit of a update, but that's where that's at for Alan's case for now. And I also had a look to see if there was any Christy Evans updates, which was one of our most recent episodes, and there's not. She was meant to go to court on July 8 or July 9, and I can't find anything about if that happened or if um, Khalil, who was the other man involved, if he went to court, I can't find any updates on that. So I'm assuming maybe that's been pushed back. If anyone else knows any different, let us know, but I can't find any updates on that yet. Yeah, it's weird. Mm. Must just me, like, nothing really happened. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you'd think there would be at least a short article if if they did end up going to court, but who knows? Yeah, it's weird because, like we said last episode, that case, it seems like this one, it kind of just like is flying under the radar because it was just written off as like some weird love triangle. Yeah, maybe a bit too um, sorted for some people. (laughs) Not for us, though. (laughs) No. But it actually reminds me. There's, um, of course, like, I, I knew that this was happening when we recorded, so I can't even just be like, oh, like, it came out right after we recorded. But near where I live in Poughkeepsie, it's been, like, in the local news that a woman who, in 2017, Nicole Adamando, she shot her boyfriend in his sleep in 2017 and said it was because um, he, like, abused her for years. She was originally sentenced to 19 years to life. But um, this week she got her sentence reduced to seven and a half years because of the abuse and stuff. I saw that you did a poll on the Instagram. A lot of people said that they thought her sentence should be much reduced because of the abuse that she suffered, which is interesting. Yeah. I think that, like, she should still 
get in a little trouble, but like not like be in jail for life. Yeah. You can't go out just promoting vigilante justice and, you know, letting everyone yeah. think it's all right. But I do agree that, you know, there's um, some circumstances in, the, in that case that should be taken into account. Yeah, I agree. I'd love to be like, no, she should just be free, but then people are just going to start murdering everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that was worth a mention, I thought, this week is that we got a message from someone saying that a member of our group had actually been murdered, which is just terrible. Her name was Sarah Sentongo. She'd been a member since 2019, and basically this past Wednesday, July 21, she was shot and killed by her husband in Las Vegas in a murder-suicide. So... That's horrendous news. She had two kids, I think. One was 12 and the other one might have been a few years older. So lots and lots of people affected and impacted by her death, which is just very, very sad news. I thought it was, um, I was going to say, I thought it was cool that, which, I mean, I guess it is cool. Her friend said that, like, she'd want to be posted on the page. Yeah, her friend was the one who messaged us and said that they both loved the group so much and it was um, Sarah's kind of escape and um you know her guilty pleasure i guess for lack of a better term but that she would want us to know what had happened so i was grateful that she told us but you know obviously it's a terrible situation that we wish we didn't have to know about so very sad yeah i'm I'm glad her her friend reached out yeah me too i saw her commenting in the like amongst all the you know condolence comments and things like that so that is one nice um you know, aspect of it, at least that she can feel supported by other group members. Yeah. And it just made me think of, I don't know, I think we've talked about on the podcast that Tiffany, there's been yeah. nothing with that either. That guy's still. No. He's still missing her. In case anyone doesn't know, Tiffany Booth was another really active member in our group and she was murdered by her boyfriend, Eduardo. Um, he has been on the run ever since. He's still missing. This has been going, must be nearly a year. Yeah, I'll just Google and see when exactly when she passed away, but um, October, so nearly a year. But and he tried to like play it off. Either she did leave with him, or like he tried to play it off that they like ran away together, Mm. or she did, and then he murdered her. There, there hasn't been a lot out about it yet, but it was definitely. Even I'm looking now, and like the last updates for her case were in March, where they confirmed that she was murdered, um, and that basically Eduardo was the main suspect. So. Yeah, it's crazy how it can just go cold like that. Surely he cannot be that smart to still be hiding. But no, and he looks so dumb. <laughs> but then again, like lumpfish. I would. I feel like I would never be able to. He does. He <laughs> would never be able to like recognize people on the street. I think it's so hard to do that because even if I like follow something closely, like just to see someone out in the street and be like, "Oh, that's that person." I know, and I you're like always it's really like- hard to recall. He also, I think, lost a ton of weight, so I think he might be unrecognisable or harder to recognise anyway. Um, and yeah. he's got just such a generic, plain, boring face that he could probably very easily blend into a crowd, especially if he's moved away from the area where they lived and people yeah. aren't that across the crime. Yeah. So anyway, she, she, yeah, that was a crazy one as well. I guess it just shows that it can happen to anyone at any time. I know. It- makes me like paranoid sometimes Mm. but yeah hopefully no more of our group members get killed Mm. would be be great i know wishful thinking yeah i know stay safe out there everyone it seems to be i think that's maybe the second or third murder suicide death that we've had of a group member Um, yeah it's crazy mm, it's very sad but 
it's really all the updates we have. I guess crime hasn't ever since we complained about how there were so many updates, there's been like no <laughs> updates. So that's like our karma, I guess. I think we've covered all the big things for this week so far. So this episode, we're going to talk about John Doe's as kind of like a continuation of our episode we did like two episodes ago about Jane Doe's. Yeah. Everyone was really into the Jane Doe cases. I feel like because they're very mysterious and, um, you know, a lot of people don't know about them. So it's quite new for some people. Yeah. I It's weird because like I never like reading about them sometimes. I don't know. I just... I've like never been into them, but the ones that we talked about on our podcast, I, I thought it was really interesting. But I think it's because, like I said on the other podcast, that I get like disappointed when there's like no resolution, so I'm just left to wonder. <laughs> I found it interesting though because we did Jane Doe's, and I was thought surely there's going to, you know, because I I'm more familiar with the Jane Doe cases as well. But I thought surely there's going to be some equally as interesting John Doe's, and I found them quite hard to find. I know that. Um, for instance, we've done a whole episode on our favourite one, Mostly Harmless, and his was fascinating. He was a hiker who went on the Appalachian Trail in 2018 and he was found dead in his tent. So I feel like we've spoken about that one it was so fascinating because there was actual photos of him and footage of him, but still no one knew who he was. Um, and the other one that I remember was also kind of equally fascinating was Lyle Stevick, which I know I've mentioned before as well, but he was a man who hanged himself in a hotel and was unidentified, I think, for over 10 years. And again, there was photos of him. And it's just so crazy that people can remain unidentified, even though there's, um, you know, actual images of them to be identified from. Yeah, it's just weird to think that no one's looking for someone. Apart from those two, I found it quite hard to find... Um, much info on a lot of the John Doe's. There seems, to, I don't know, maybe it's because women are more into true crime and they are more able to associate with the Jane Doe's. I don't know if that's why, but there seems to be a lot less information on John Doe's, which is sad because there are still a lot of them out there. Yeah. I was trying to think of reasons why that would be, and I can't really think of anything that doesn't sound like sexist or terrible. So. <laughs> So in the other episode, we gave you a rundown on what a doe is. Basically, if you don't know, it's someone who cannot be identified. This is either for legal reasons, such as identity suppression in court, or because investigators cannot figure out who someone is. So we gave you some stats in that episode, and I tried to find a few more for this one, but I found an interesting study online, and it was called <clears throat> John and Jane Doe, the Epidemiology of Unidentified Decidents. So it's a long title, but this I found this <laughs> This um, was quite interesting. It says, it's a few years old now, but I think it's still relevant. It says an average of 413 unidentified persons died each year. The peak year was 1987 with 691 deaths, which is the rate of 28.5 per 10 million. And the rate declined to 9.7 per 10 million in 2004. Most unidentified decedents were male, 80.6%. So I think that the rate of unidentified people has declined because of basically, for I, my theory is the increase in technology. There's now CCTV. So if someone dies, for example, in a park, you could probably go and figure out how they got there and where they came from and what methods they used to get there. Like it's much harder now to just kind of, I guess, disappear. <laughs> yeah, just stop the paper trail into your life. Like back then you could use cash for more things and, you know, do you know what I mean? Like it was just easier to kind of stop the Even trail. Like social media and stuff because yeah. i feel like back before the internet was as big as as it is now on social media 
someone could disappear. And I know with like older cases, like parents of someone who was missing was like, he was just on like a trip, like across the country. And then mm-hmm. we just like lost touch with him. We just thought he was still out there. Whereas now it's social media. It's like if someone's regularly posting and then they suddenly just stop. It kind of would alert people sooner. It's just easier to keep tabs on people now. There's a pretty famous case in Australia. It's actually still a missing persons case of a woman called Marion Barter. Anyway, there's a whole other podcast on it called The Lady Vanishes, if anyone needs another one. But um, I was listening to that last night and they were talking about that exact thing that they said they weren't worried about her because she said she was going away for two years to go and live in England. So when they didn't hear from her, they just assumed, oh, yeah, that's you know, normal, because she said she was going to be gone for two years. And this is in the late 90s. So that was also back before people had access to cell phones and cheap calling and all that type of stuff. So back then it was just like, "Mm, yeah, whatever. And then I guess time gets away from you and you realise that it's been 10 years since you've heard from someone. And then by then, where do you even start? Anyway, so today the cases we're going to cover are the case of the boy in the box, which is quite an old one, but there's a lot of information on it, surprisingly, for such an old case. And then at the end, we're just going to go through a few other John Doe cases where there's not a whole lot of information, but I think that they're just as equally important as all the other ones that we've covered. Yeah. Ivy Hill Cemetery on the outskirts of northwest Philadelphia is the final resting place for hundreds. Opposite the front gate, the first grave you see carries with it a deep mystery. This is the final resting place for the boy in the box. Trinkets and flowers are left for the late six-year-old victim. Cemetery workers meticulously care for the space that feels extra sacred. It'd be great to know who we're putting the flowers out for. He, for now, remains the boy without a name. That's the biggest uh, mystery right now. His identity coldly tied to the details. His battered remains were found in a box February 1957. Who is the child? What is what is his name? Can we at least give him a name? So to start with The Boy in the Box, um, it was 1957. It was a cold February day in Philadelphia, and the body of a naked and beaten male child was found in a cardboard box. As of July 2021, when we're recording, the child has never been identified and he's often referred to as the boy in the box or America's unknown child. They're still investigating leads into this case to this day, which is good, I think. Yes, it is good. Well, I know it's a, it's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I'll say it at the end. I'll say it at the end because I was going to talk about do they really need to bother because everyone's probably going to be dead who was involved in this anyway or close to death. So, I know, disappointing. So the boy was discovered in a park in the fox chase section of the city by a muskrat hunter named John Stouchewick, Stouchewack, I think that's how you say it. He said he had set out to set to check his traps. As he moved through the brush, he came across a box lying on the ground. He looked inside and saw the body of a child. He didn't report the finding to police as I think his traps were illegal and he didn't want to get in trouble. So he left the box and he moved on. That's so sketchy. Oh, no. Imagine just finding a body and thinking, well, 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 too bad. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that there. (laughs) And then a few days later, after he came by, another man called Frederick Benoni, this was on February 25, came, said he was driving along the road and he saw a rabbit dash, dash into the brush. His story was originally that he knew there were animal traps in the area, so he pulled over and went into the wooded area to check the poor little rabbit was okay. (laughs) But he too came across the body. 
He also didn't report his finding to police at that time because it eventually emerged that he'd actually been in the area spying on female students at a nearby school. So he was a bit of a creepy peeping Tom, and that's what he was actually doing there. He saw a news report the next day about a four-year-old girl that was missing, and then he thought he'd better call the police. The child in the box, though, did end up being male, and the missing girl was found one week later and had sadly died from starvation in an abandoned house, which is terrible. He finally called the police and they began to investigate. So the area where the child was found is located in the 700 block of the Susquehanna River near Vary Road and Pennypack Park, which is within northeast Philadelphia. The body was found in a box that had once contained a bassinet and had been sold by J.C. Penney. It was 15 by 19 by 35 inches in size and featured the words furniture, fragile, and do not open with a knife. So there's actually photos of the box online. and They'll be on the blog as well. So it looks like it's not in terrible condition for having been out in the open for however long. Um, like there's a photo of the box lying on the ground and then a, bo- a photo of it when they've obviously taken it into evidence. It's still pretty intact. looks slightly beaten and battered, but it looks, you know, you could use it to obviously carry things still. Yeah, it's not like totally deteriorated. Like mm. sometimes you see like cardboard boxes that have been outside for a long time. They're just like mush. Yeah, it, like it, it obviously hasn't been too wet or too, you know, anything like that. It seems like it wasn't out there for super long time. Yeah, you wouldn't think so based on that condition. The boy was found wrapped in a plaid blanket. I've read some reports that say the blanket was Native American style and had been cut in half. The blanket was 70, uh, 64 by 74 inches and made from an inexpensive, well-worn cotton flannel. It had on it a design of diamonds and the blocks were green, white, brown and red in colour. It appeared to have been recently washed. An additional piece of it was found in the box and it was smeared with automotive grease and a third 31 by 26 piece was missing. The boy was described um, as being white and pale. He's believed to have been between the ages of three and six, meaning he was likely born in around 1952. He stood anywhere from three foot to three foot four. He weighed 30 pounds and had blue eyes. His hair was matted and it seemed to have been recently cut as clumps of it still clung to his body. I've read um, some um, reports that say he had a bit of a bowl cut, so it wasn't a professional haircut. It was quite crude and home carried out mm-hmm. his body was very malnourished and he had was covered interestingly with surgical scars which were on his ankle groin and chin his hair was light brown to sandy blonde he was also covered in a ton of bruises which indicate that he may have been abused before his death his body was so wasted away that his ribs were showing through the skin but despite all this abuse, there was no sign of any previously broken bones or bones that were broken at the time of his death. The child had seven scars, as we said, that some of them were from surgical procedures. The ones on his chest and groin appeared to have healed well, and they left just a hairline scar, while the third one was on his left ankle and looked to have been a cut-down incision made to expose a vein so the needle could be inserted to give a transfusion or infusion, which is an interesting place on your ankle to do that, maybe. Yeah, it's weird. I was wondering, like, what surgical scars you have on your ankle, because all I could think of would be, like, if you really broke it badly or something, but... I know that you can get, like, a bone infection. I don't know if that would have something to... I, I have no idea. If someone knows, they might be able to, you know, send sure a message. I'm sure there's tons of reasons, but... Yeah. I, it just seems like a weird place for an infusion, but I'm sure, yeah, there must be some... Especially for, like, for a kid. Yeah. 
Um, so other scars he had were a half-inch one on the left side of his chest, a round, irregular-shaped one on his left elbow, and a well-heeled L-shaped scar on his chin that was a quarter-inch long on each side. They didn't find any vaccination scars on his body, and the child's right palm and soles of his feet were round and wrinkled, which may indicate that he'd been submerged in water around the time he died. His esophagus also contained dark brown residue, which meant that he had vomited prior to death. The medical examiner determined that the child had likely died from blunt force trauma. There were four round-shaped bruises on his forehead and his face was blood-drained. They did some x-rays on him and they showed that he'd suffered from arrested growth, which was most likely due to the malnutrition and abuse he experienced. They fingerprinted the child and cross-checked his footprints because I think over there, I don't know if they still do it, but they take the fingerprints and footprints of the child in the hospital when they're born. So Mm -hmm. I guess this was before DNA and all that. So just as a way of identifying them if they ever had to. So they cross-checked all that in the hopes of finding a match, but they didn't find anything. So this led them to believe that he was possibly born at home or at least not in a hospital as no records could be found. It's also thought that the child appeared to have suffered from a chronic eye ailment or infection before he died, but that had been treated with medication. He'd been circumcised and had numerous small moles on his body, three on the left side of his face, one below his right ear, three on the right side of his chest, and a large one above his wrist. Despite all the abuse suffered by this child, someone had still kept his fingernails and toenails neatly trimmed. His shoe size was 8D, and he had a full set of baby teeth, and he's said to have been slightly buck-toothed. So... Sounds like he was still young because by six-ish you generally maybe start losing teeth. I know some kids are later. So, um, yeah, that sounds like he was in that middle of the three to six range possibly. I feel like the fingernails thing is doesn't really mean anything to me because, like, what if he just bit his nails? Yeah. I did read that it said, like, they were neatly trimmed, but who knows, that could have been lost in translation over the years and it was just a bitten thing. The weather in February at the time that the box was found was cold and rainy, which made it hard for them to determine a confirmed date and time of death. In the end, the medical examiner estimated him to have died anywhere from a few days to two weeks prior to being found. But it's thought that it was more likely to be just a few days because, as we said, the box was dry and it had been raining in the weeks before. The Philadelphia Inquirer printed 400,000 flyers with the boy's picture on it and they were distributed across the area. They also put a flyer in with every gas bill, which I thought was quite clever for that time. Mm. You know, at least everyone's going to see it that way. Like a different version of the, the milk carton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 270 police academy recruits combed through the crime scene. They discovered a man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G on the corner. The cap was interesting to police as it seemed to maybe give them some possible leads. It was in great condition and had a manufacturer's stamp in the lining, which read Robin's Boiled Bald Eagle Cap, 2603 South 7th Street, Philadelphia. So if that was today, they probably could have gotten DNA from the hat. <laughs> I wonder what happened to all this stuff if they've ever kept it. And yeah, I haven't, I, I haven't seen anything. It's probably so degraded by now that they wouldn't be able to get anything anyway. Yeah, I only saw when I was reading about it, like on Wikipedia, that they just they have the DNA, but that was after they exhumed the body. Mm. But we'll get there. But they didn't say anything about anything else. No. So they went to the shop where this cap came from, and the owner, Hannah Robbins, told them that she'd customized it for the man who bought it. According to her, she said he'd been between the ages of 26 and 30, 
with blonde hair and no identifiable accent. He purchased the cap with cash and she never saw him again. Um, they also, so none of the other things, the handkerchief or anything, none of that ever, you know, provided them with any more leads to go off. But they did find a strand of long brown hair at the scene and this did not belong to the child. So again, that could maybe be a DNA thing, but who knows if it's still available. The boy's case was broadcast throughout the country via police teletype and people travelled from 10 states to Pennsylvania in an attempt to identify him. They also published an article about his scars and injuries in a paediatric journal just in case any physician had treated a child with similar injuries and could maybe give some recollection as to who this child was, but nothing came from that. They went around, police went around neighborhoods and they checked every hospital, orphanage and foster home in the area, but found that every documented child was accounted for. And they also started to look more into the box that the child was found in. There's a really good website I found called Stories of the Unsolved. I'll link to it in the blog and this info came from that. It said, a serial number on it allowed investigators to trace the box to a JC Penny store in Upper Derby, Pennsylvania, located at 69th Street and Chestnut Street. It had been sold between December 1956 and February 16, 1957 for $7.50. A search of records showed that only 12 were sold and they were able to track down eight of the purchases, but they couldn't track down the other four. So maybe this, this person somehow slipped into those cracks and was it's interesting just, though mm, very interesting they also did some more investigation into the blanket that the boy was wrapped in they discovered it had been made made in either and i hope i'm getting this right swananoa north carolina or granby in quebec however thousands of the blankets had been produced and shipped across the u.s and they were unable to pinpoint exactly where it had been purchased the child was eventually buried in a potter's field in Holmesburg, Pennsylvania, next to Mechanicsville and Dunks Ferry Road. His tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown child. If anyone doesn't know what a potter's field is, it's basically a place where they bury either unidentified people or people who aren't able to afford a proper burial. And I think they're called unclaimed people. So yeah. basically anyone who's fa- who has no family to claim them. So nothing came from the media attention given to the case and the police started to look down another road of having a sketch of the child as a female drawn up. They believed that maybe the child had been made to look as look female before he died. Um, they thought that his unprofessional haircut, which appeared to have been very quickly performed, was the basis for the scenario and they also thought that his eyebrows had been styled. So they thought maybe by doing it as a female, there's someone that might recognize more this child and, you know, might come forward. Maybe that's how, like, the fingernails tied in. Yeah. I don't know. This whole story is so weird. Like, I I was, this was such a weird twist where they're like, well, maybe he looked like a girl. <laughs> maybe. I guess why not? You might have, it can't hurt to try that going down that way. Yeah. They also released a postmodern image of the child dressed in, in a seated position in the hope that it would jog the memory of someone who knew him before death and, you know, but maybe they would recognise a more lifelike pose, but that didn't help. So there was a medical examiner play, employee at the time, Remington Bristow, and he took this case very personally. He published a fake story in a newspaper indicating that the boy had died as the result of an accident and that his loved ones had not been able to afford a funeral. He hoped that this would make someone come out of the woodwork and say, actually, yes, that's our son, and yes, that's what happened. But that didn't happen. <laughs> he also personally put up a $1,000 reward for info into the case, and he travelled to many states looking for more information. 
So we come now to theories about who this child is or was. The first theory, theory, which I find kind of probably the most plausible, seems to be a lot of things going for it, is that there was a foster home that was located around 1.5 miles away from where the body was found. In 1960, the medical examiner employee, Remington Bristow, contacted a psychic who told him to look for a certain house, and when he did, he found it to be a foster home. He also brought the psychic to the crime scene, and then she took him straight to that same house unprompted, I guess. So they're all hitting on this house. It was run by Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti and Catherine's daughter from a previous marriage, Anna Marie Nagel. Remington Bristow went to an estate sale at the foster home and he discovered a bassinet, which would have been similar to the one housed in the box. And there's actually photos of this stuff that they bought from the estate sale. So you can see the bassinet and you can see the other things they were going to speak about as well. So check them out on the blog. He also discovered blankets hanging on the clothesline that was similar to the one the boy's body had been wrapped in when they discovered him. Bristow's theory was that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man, so that would be Anna Marie Nagel, who ran the foster home, and that they disposed of his body so that the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. Interestingly enough, when I was looking into this, um, Catherine, who was Arthur's wife, eventually passed away, and Arthur married his stepdaughter, Anna Marie. So there's a whole kind of little bit of a tangled wed web there in relation to it's that like family. like hurting my brain. It sounds very confusing, but maybe it is a plausible thing. Maybe the child was Anna Marie's and Arthur's child even, and they like got Like an incest her. maybe? Oh, no, it wouldn't even be because it was a stepdaughter. Well, I guess, it, yeah, it's not, I guess. But it'd still be not Genetic favorable. incest, yeah. So, like, I feel like all these things point to it maybe being a possibility. But despite all this circumstantial evidence, the police could not find any solid links between the boy in the box and the foster family. In 1998, Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine, who was in charge of the investigation, got together with several members of the VDOC Society, which is basically a group of retired policemen and profilers who kind of get together to try and solve cold cases. They interviewed the foster father and the stepdaughter, who was then his wife, (laughs) but they determined that there was no link and the foster home investigation was closed. So... That was a bit of a dead end, which is surprising considering all the, you know, things that had going for it. Even, like, just from all the different stories you hear now about not even just, like, foster homes, but, like, those weird schools that, like, Paris Hilton went to and then, like, the mass graves that they found in Canada Mm -hmm. at those types of schools. It seems like, like, during this time period in general, they weren't keeping great tabs on the children there, clearly. Yeah. And I know there's like other schools like in the U.S. where they've years and years later found remains of children there. I forget what the one's called, but I feel like it wouldn't be so hard to believe that maybe he was just like a kid at the foster home that they got rid of and no one would really notice. I guess back then there was a lot less um, paperwork and official, you know, things that you had to do in terms of fostering and orphanages and adoptions and things like that. Like it was much easier to kind of do things in a dodgy way than it would be today. And it'd be easier to get rid of paperwork back yeah. then. Like now yeah. everything's electronic where if you open it, like stamps your name on it, whereas there's probably all paper where you'd be like, let me just erase this or throw Let's, this out. Literally, it is just paper. So you could burn it in a fire yeah. and it would be gone. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so the second theory, which is also an interesting one, is that a woman named M, who they call M, and I've read that that can either mean Martha or Mary, came forward in 2002. So this is a long time after the boy was found. But this M claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the unknown boy, whose name was actually Jonathan, from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. The boy was subjected by her mother to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. One evening at dinner, the boy vomited up his meal of baked beans and was given a severe beating with his head slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. He was then given a bath during which he died. So interestingly, these details spoke um, matched with what we said earlier, you know, that he might have been submerged in water and that he had injuries to his head and things like that, which, which only the investigators knew at the time. Um, and the coroner also did find that there were remains of baked beans in the actual boy in the box's stomach. So that's kind of interesting. Out of all the things in the world to make up a story about and you both get the, you know, get it right. Yeah, I feel like it's too oddly specific to make up. M also said that her mother cut the boy's distinctive long hair, which, you know, as we've spoken about the dodgy haircut, in an effort to conceal his identity. M's mother forced M to assist her in dumping the boy's body in the fox chase area. M said that they were getting ready to move the body from the trunk of the car and a passing male motorist stopped to ask if they needed help. M was ordered to stand in front of the car's license plates to shield it from view while her mother convinced the man that there was no problem. He eventually left and they dumped the body. The story corroborated confidential testimony given by a male witness in 1957 who said the body had been placed in a box previously discarded at the scene. So this means they just found the box there and put the boy in it. Um, in spite of the outward plausibility of M's confession, police could not verify her story. And neighbours who also had access to M's house said that there was never a young boy living there and that her claims were, quote, ridiculous. Police have said that they do believe her story may be plausible, but they're also wary as she has a history of mental illness. Maybe she has a history of mental illness because her mom made her dispose of the body as a child and beat another child around her for and years. It sounds like her mother probably was wasn't abusive. a great mom. Yeah, was yeah. abusive. So it was probably abusive to her as well. So it's crazy. I haven't found much else about like you know how far they've gone into investigating this. It sounds like she has a lot of details. I'm sure that if this was plausible, there'd be some way for them to get more info into it. I feel like some of the details, if you were making it up, like how would you even think of it? Like, oh, my mom made me stand in front of the license plate so the guy didn't see it, like if you yeah. were lying. Unless she really doesn't like her mother and just <laughs> made it seem as nefarious. I just feel like you could. wouldn't even think of that stuff. Yeah, no. I know. Like all those details that you might say, oh, yeah, we, we drove there and dumped the body, but then you wouldn't, like all those things are just extra. Yeah, they're just like small details. So I also find that one interesting. It seems plausible to me, but – you know obviously as I think case, it's true it's still not solved yeah it sucks because even if that is what happened it'd be hard for them to prove it because it's not like th she said her mom purchased the kid or got the kid somehow so it's not like the dna would match to them yeah so it's like it them to prove anyways and back then how would you even find a jonathan who was born in whatever year like it would just be it would be so hard to backtrack when there's just nothing electronic or nothing do you know what i mean it's yeah, much like it's impossible, basically. So the third theory, there was actually a man who wrote a book about this case, which is called The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child, and his name is David Stout. His theory was that the child's parents were probably poor and maybe carnival or migrant workers who would have been able to travel without a paper trail. 
Mm. Um, this theory is supported that in 1961 there was an arrest of carnival workers Kenneth and Irene Dudley, and their seven-year-old daughter was found deceased in a wooded area in Virginia, wrapped in a blanket with signs of abuse and malnutrition. And they've also said that several more of their children had gone missing, with many of them having passed away as a result of neglect and abuse, but they couldn't really tie any of them to this unidentified boy in the box. Um, I feel like that wouldn't be a one-off cat, one-off scenario either. I feel like there would have been a lot of parents in similar situations at that yeah. time. So I know that they've singled out this one of Kenneth and Irene, but I feel like that is also a plausible one to me and maybe not even that, maybe just someone else in a similar situation. Yeah, definitely. And the other theory that I've read is that people think Frederick Benonis, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Anyway, Frederick, <laughs> he was the second person to found, find the body, the one who said that he saw the rabbit run into the brush and so he ran in after the rabbit, um, that he was actually involved in the murder. I don't think that's true because, A, he wasn't the first person to find the body, but I guess maybe, you know, they always say that the murderer goes back to the site and maybe when no one had discovered it, he kind of did it himself. Yeah, what about, what about the first guy? Yeah. So I've, I feel like this is probably the least plausible theory. He voluntarily took a lie detector test and was cleared by investigators. Um, people do say this is just because polygraphs are unreliable. I feel like it probably wasn't him. He sounds like a creep if he was a peeping Tom, but I feel like he was just I, – I think that's not the right theory for this one. No. I feel like that would be easier for the police to solve anyways. Yeah, absolutely. So even though this case happened so long ago now, there are some recent and well, semi-recent and recent updates. In 1998, which I know is a while ago now, but it's still recent in terms of the age of this case, <laughs> the body of the child was exhumed to, exa- um, sorry, to obtain DNA from the enamel of his teeth. The DNA was sent to the University of North Texas and entered into both national and local databases. Unfortunately, though, nothing came from this. They then reinterred the boy in a grave marked America's Unknown Child in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. The cemetery donated the plot while the son of the man who buried the child back in 1957 donated the coffin, headstone and money for the funeral service, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. The service got lots of public attention and residents continue to keep the grave decorated with stuffed animals and flowers. So there's tons of photos of the grave online. I'll put it up on the blog. It's got a little lamb at the top of the gravestone. It says America's Unknown Child, dedicated November 11, 1998. And the photo I've got here, there's a Spider-Man toy. Looks like maybe five or six other little toys near the toy on the grave. So that's nice that people still remember the child. Yeah. In 2016, so this one is fairly recent, two writers, one from L.A. Um, called Jim Hoffman and the other from New Jersey called Louis Romano, explained that they believe they discovered a potential identity of the child from Memphis, Tennessee, and they requested that DNA be compared between this, the family in Memphis and the child. The lead was originally discovered by a Philadelphia man who introduced the two writers and was developed and presented with the help of Jim Hoffman to the Philadelphia Police Department and the VDOC Society, who we spoke about earlier, in 2013. They agreed to help get DNA from this family member in 2014 and they sent it to the Philadelphia Police. They confirmed that they would investigate the lead, but they said they would need to do more research on the circumstances surrounding the link before comparing DNA. So they finally, in 2017, the homicide sergeant, Bob Kalmeyer, 
confirmed that the DNA taken from the Texas man, uh, sorry, the Memphis man was compared to the boy in the box, but there was no connection. So that was a big, long saga for nothing to come of it. I would love to know more about what the circumstances were and why they thought it was this Memphis person. That's what I was going to say. I'd love to know why they thought this family or people would be it. Did they have a missing kid or something? <laughs> like- um, yeah, so I'd like to know more about that too. Hopefully one day it'll come out. Maybe they'll make a movie about it. Maybe I'll do a Netflix doc. <laughs> On March 21, 2016, the National Centre for Miss- Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of John Doe and added his details to their database, finally. In April 2018, the genetic genealogist who helped identify the Golden State Killer announced they would be using DNA profiling in order to try and identify the boy through familial DNA. So I tried to find anything else about that. There wasn't really anything else. I'm assuming that this is kind of like an ongoing process because it's such an old case with such old evidence. Mm -hmm. But I did find an article by CBS Philadelphia, which was from April this year, so only a few months ago, and it says, Philadelphia homicide detectives two years ago, so that would be 2019, got an order to exhume the remains of the boy in the box. What they were able to retrieve this time for DNA purposes was sent to a lab in Europe, and this now has given them their biggest break yet. This is the closest we have gotten, said homicide captain Jason Smith. They now have a DNA profile they hope leads them to family members of the boy, and the investigators say this gives them new direction. Might there be witnesses around? There could be. Absolutely. Maybe there might still be a perpetrator that's still alive. Possibly could be. So I haven't heard there's nothing else yet about that. I'm assuming this is going to be, again, a long, drawn-out process. I don't know why. If they have a DNA, DNA profile, I guess they have to then investigate if, it, if there is a match, for example, how the match is related to the child and they can't just come out and say, hey, we've found a second cousin of this child. Yeah, if the police came to me one day and they were like, oh, we have this DNA match of like a distant relative of yours, I would have no idea what to tell them. Like, I yeah. know my immediate family and that's it. Yeah, exactly. And my, I, I, I personally have an enormous family, like extended family. My dad has five or six brothers and sisters. My mum has seven sisters. So all married, all had kids. I've got cousins I don't even know. So, um, yeah, yeah, so it's like either people, people don't know families. their family at all or they're too big. Or don't want to know their family, don't want to be involved. And, you know, yeah. there's a million reasons, I guess, why it could take a long time. But that mm. sounds promising. That sounds like... Maybe they'll have a, you know, development on this case eventually in the next few years. That would be a good update. Yeah. They should. I wonder if they could. It's probably kind of what they're talking about, how they went back and got more DNA, probably so they could. I don't remember, like, what it's all called, but I learned about it in forensics, but how they, like, create, like, the DNA profile and you could find out a lot more stuff. But yeah. remember how with Mostly Harmless, they were able to, like, figure out, like, what state he was probably from and, and like, what area. I know, yeah, because I know, yeah, yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Like they said he was from Baton Rouge and yeah, you know, probably so, from the south and all that type of stuff. So that's probably what they're like working on. Yeah, it's, yeah. We were going to we were speaking about it a little bit earlier. This is such an old case. It seems like there's still a lot of effort being you know spent on it. I think it, like it's good, obviously, because people should be held accountable for their actions, but. My wondering is if there is anyone going to be left to be accountable for this. If if the person, let's just say, was 30 at the time when they killed this child, are they going to be alive now? Maybe. What will they do? Do you know what I mean? Like it just seems like. They'll be too old know. to go to prison if they're alive. 
I feel like there's a lot of cases that are more current where someone could actually be held accountable. So I guess, yeah. you know, it's just where do you draw the line and they haven't drawn the line in this case, which, you know, is great. I think it's fine still, but I guess there's a lot of opinions about where the line should be drawn in terms of investigating a crime like this. I feel like it's more so not that it, it shouldn't be solved or that they shouldn't be working on it, but I feel like it's more a badge for the police department of being like, yeah. we finally solved this cold case. And I guess, too, it's not urgent, so they can work on it when they have time and if they have time and, yeah, yeah, they can't hurt, I guess. So what are your thoughts on the theories and what do you think happened? I don't know. I kind of believe the M story. I just feel like it's too oddly specific for her to make it up. And if she lived, like, a similar life of abuse with a crazy mother who murdered children and made her help, of course she's going to have mental illness and be a little crazy probably. <laughs> I do agree. I think her story sounds plausible, especially with the baked beans and, you know, the haircut and all that type of stuff. And it had, like, the the water, like, he was in the bath, so it's the yeah. wrinkled fingers, the throwing up, like, the head trauma. Like, it literally had everything. I wish we could read a transcript of her whole story to see if there was anything that didn't match and if they're just reporting the things that did match. Because if she said other things that were glaringly not true, that would be yeah, interesting true. as well. But I haven't seen them. So I do agree. I think her... Story seems plausible. I think the foster family thing, especially with the bassinet for sale and the blanket mm-hmm. on the clothesline, I think that's interesting. But yeah. apparently that's been um, dispelled and not true. So Yeah, I don't really get how they could totally dispel that. But mm. I just I feel like it must be so hard at this point because even with the M story, like I was saying before, even if that is what happened, how do you prove it at this point? Or how do you disprove it at this point? Yeah. But I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked if it was either of those. No. Hopefully we'll find out one day um, soon. It's an interesting case. It's crazy to me that, you know, no one missed this child or no one. Well, clearly yeah. whoever had the child didn't freaking care about them. So yeah. yeah, the poor little thing had such a hard life for being three or between three and six years old to have his life. Yeah. So horrendous. I know some people are into like historical crimes. I don't know if this is old enough to be considered historical, but older cases always kind of bore me because there's not a ton of information because mm-hmm. either it was just like lost over time or there wasn't a lot of, you know, forensic science and things like that. There's never so there's usually, usually not many a photos lot of info. and like I yeah. find the ones where you can see the crime scene and you can see the um, evidence and all that is uh, more engaging generally. Yeah, that's why I still feel like even though this one's from like the 50s, it's super interesting just because there's so much information that they put out and it's just so mysterious where it's kind of different from other ones you hear about from that time. Definitely. So I know that that's one who uh, the case has kind of captured a lot of people. If you Google it, just boy in the box, there's still tons and tons of information out there, lots and lots of web pages dedicated to him. So if you want to dig more, you can. there's plenty of resources out there for that one. Photos of him sitting are so creepy. I kind of can't believe they did that. I know. Like, I don't know. Like, I get showing the face. Like, I totally get that. But then why sitting? Like, that, I, I know. Is that I really going to. I don't really think it helps anything. Jog someone's memory. It's like, <laughs> oh, now that I see him sitting. <laughs> maybe. Maybe it's Billy down the street. <laughs> I feel like that would never happen today. No. Like, here's this dead child sitting for you all to see. Crazy. Very strange. Next, we're going to talk about a few where there's not as much information known about them, which kind of seems to be more common in terms of John Doe cases. Yeah. 
So we'll talk about a few of those just quickly. Obviously, they're um, not overly involved because there's not a ton of information, but still a little bit interesting, at least. (laughs) (laughs) So on June 20th, 1974, a hiker stumbled across human remains near the Mile Valley Golf Course in Mill Valley, Marin County, California. The remains were examined and determined to belong to a male child who died between 1972 and 1974. This child is now known as Mill Valley John Doe. As only the skull, ribs, and vertebrae were recovered from the site, a cause of death was not able to be determined. And the child's race is also unknown, but it's believed he was white. He's believed to have been between four and six years of age. And the remains were in terrible condition, therefore his weight, height, eye color... And anything else really wasn't able to be determined, but they said that he was likely considerably small for his age. Um, Strands of hair found with the remains showed him to have had brown hair. His remains are found with an olive green windbreaker or ski coat with a hood, a blue sweater, a green and white striped knit type shirt, and a blue t-shirt were located near his body. And he was also found with a half an inch size red ladybug pin. With his remains. I wonder if it was on one of the shirts. Yeah. I know it because it says found near the body, but I'm assuming that because he'd been there for a while, maybe it had just kind of been scavenged by animals. Yeah. But that was gross to me. So there appears to have been no attempt at a burial. The bones didn't show any signs of abuse or malnutrition. It's been noted that his teeth had a gray-blue discoloration to them, which was likely caused by the use of tetracyclines or antibiotics it shows to me yeah that someone cared about that child obviously enough to get him a decent amount of medical attention if it was enough to have um affected his teeth yeah i wonder if he was just kind of sick and died from being sick and i feel like that in this case that could be a possible because it says you know he was small for his age so maybe he had a lot of medical conditions and Maybe the family didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, couldn't afford to bury him or didn't want to get in trouble or, you know, I feel like this this one is probably more a case of a natural or a medical death as opposed to abuse. Sad though. And there's a photo of him, like I'll put it up on the blog too, but they've done a reconstruction. So it's got the creepy clay head reconstruction. Then they've also done, (laughs) they've also done, like it looks half lifelike. They've put the striped shirt on him and given him brown short hair and like he looks like a child not like a clay reconstruction so i hate that one too though yeah that is creepy (laughs) they're always kind of creepy like the new like the obviously like modern modern day ones are they look more realistic or like sims at least but the older ones are always so creepy looking (laughs) um so another one is this one's known as the woodbury john doe and on may 3rd oh this is the one i live near here on May 3rd, 1998, volunteers with the Ramapo College chapter of the Adirondack Mountain Club were cleaning up the parking area of the Long Mountain Rest Stop in Bear Mountain State Park located in Woodbury, Orange County, New York. The rest stop, which is located on Route 6, is a rest area often frequented by hikers. And during the cleanup, they discovered skeletal remains wrapped in a plastic tarp, and so they called the police. Um, following examination by a medical examiner, it was determined that the man had most likely died between 1988 and 1993, although some outlets say he could have died as early as 1985. The man had been shot twice in the head with two different guns, which is weird. 
This doe is described as African-American. He's believed to have been between 17 and 35 years old. He stood anywhere from 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 11, with estimates saying that he was most likely 5'9 and weighed between 140 and 160 pounds. It's believed that he had short black hair. When he was found, he was wearing a black Fruit of the Loom t-shirt with a rainbow leading to a pot of gold. Um, he had a spring-like navy blue zippered Sir Jack jacket, blue Lee jeans, navy blue boxer shorts, and white low-top pony sneakers. It's been noted that his shoes were out of date at the time his remains were found. I don't know what that, that means. Yeah, I'm guessing that means that they weren't what was in fashion. But like, may, or maybe they like, didn't make them anymore or something? Yeah, yeah, maybe like discontinued. Yeah, I feel like that has to be it. When I yeah. read it, I was like, "What do they mean? Like they yeah. were too new? Like someone put shoes on?" <laughs> I thought they meant like they were like yeah. I, I'm assuming it means that you couldn't buy them no. anymore. They weren't trendy anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This John Doe, he had numerous items on his body when he was found, including a hair pick, a metal nail file, a yellow, and a yellow Bic lighter. He also had in his possession a French to English dictionary indicating he could possibly have been from Quebec or a French-speaking country. He's said to have been knock-kneed. Um, he had two healed fractures on his ribs that indicate he'd suffered a trauma early in his life, and it appeared as if he'd fractured his right hand just a few weeks before his death. Um, in terms of his dental health, it's been noted that he appeared to have underwent a root canal at some point in his life, and he also had a couple fillings and crowns, and some of his teeth had been missing prior to his death. The Woodbury John Doe has dental records available for comparison. However, due to the condition of his remains, there was no fingerprints, and they weren't able to create a DNA profile because it, there wasn't a sufficient amount of DNA. Funny it will not. Funny, but interesting to me that if they can get enamel from the boy in the box as teeth, surely they could get enamel from this guy's teeth. Yeah, I know that has to be from like, um, like I said, when I took forensics a long time ago now, but they can get it from like the pulp of your teeth or something. So maybe have and that. I also guess too, it probably costs a lot of money. So the boy in the box is a high profile yeah. case. This one sadly isn't so they're probably not like going really to they money to they can it. get dna from like your bones too but it's like probably it's a lot of work i remember them saying and you have to have like a very specialized person do it so i'm sure it costs also a lot of yeah. money i was just thinking though i was doing this like all these ones you read about they always have some like weird scar or something i was like if i was like a jane doe or something i'd have i have nothing i've got like no like mysterious scar like l-shaped scar on my chest i've got nothing Nothing to say. I have a little tiny scar under my lip that you can't even see unless I like make my skin tight. <laughs> even with the boy in the box, though, like he had three moles on his wrist or whatever it was. Like I would never, even for my kids, I would I would know some of their moles, but I would never know all of their moles. I don't have anything interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if I go missing, I guess I'm. Well, if I become no, my family would look for me though. Okay. <laughs> all right. Next one is a more recent one. In July 2020, a man was seen jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. A United States Coast Guard vessel recovered the man and transported him to the U.S. Coast Guard station at Golden Gate. He is now known as the Marion County John Doe, and he is said to be of Asian descent, and he was between 50 to 60 years old. He was around 5'7 and weighed between 160 to 170 pounds. He had short gray hair, brown eyes. Um, this is weird. Yeah, the weird. man's the man's face, neck, and lower arms, so from like his elbows to his fingertips, are darker in color 
than his upper arms, chest, and legs. Were they that made me think. Trying to say he had like a tan? Yeah, maybe he worked outside. Like my husband's a landscaper, for example, and, you know, they always get the sock marks because they wear socks yeah. and shorts. So, like, it might be a clue to, I guess, his profession or something before he died that he had they an upper body tan. It's like the weirdest way to say it. <laughs> like, they should have just been like, he had a farmer's tan. Unless they mean maybe he had some, like, skin condition, but I don't read it that way. I read it as if it's a tan. Yeah, I feel like it's just a farmer's tan, like from a T-shirt. Yeah. Interesting. Um, he had a scant amount of body hair on his legs and arms. He had gray stubble around his chin, and he wore glasses. He was wearing a black fleece zip-up sweatshirt with SF in silver and the Golden Gate Bridge embroidered on it, which is weird because he jumped it off the bridge. wonder if he planned <laughs> that. Um, a black cloth jacket, two red sweatshirts. Like These people sometimes wear a lot of clothes, I feel. No. Um, a white sweatshirt. Wait, he was wearing all these? Or this is, yeah, this is. He has three sweatshirts. And a like jacket. A, yeah, he's got, yeah. And like it says, if you go on to NamUs, which is where this is from, it actually, so it says things like, the subject was wearing eight layers on top from top to bottom. So he had on a lot of layers. Like sometimes homeless people yeah. like to lay, layer their clothing and stuff. To I was going to say them. homeless or even a tourist because a lot of his stuff, which we'll go into in a minute, like he's got the America shirt, he's got the San Fran shirt. Um, this was in July. Think, yeah, so may, maybe it was homeless. Maybe that's that would be a better um assumption maybe he had like a backpack because yeah. i was like this is like five sweatshirts at this point <laughs> um so yeah we were at white sweatshirt with america the spirit on it along with 12 red stars with a small maze logo a dark blue sweatshirt a black long sleeve 32 degrees heat shirt um a teal gap collared polo shirt yeah no way he was wearing all this <laughs> gray t-shirt on which it was printed investment development services on the front and collect rent lease space on the back i've just googled that too and there's um there's no like i can't see any business that has like i'm sure there are very similar businesses but there's nothing mm -hmm. no standout business that has that you know on it yeah He's also wearing Levi regular fit 505 blue jeans and black leather belt, white cotton socks, gray hunter brand briefs. If you go and I'll put it, I'll put the photos on the blog too, but there are lots of photos of his clothes. Um, there's no actual photo of him, which sometimes they do include in NamUs, but there's no mm -hmm. photo of him. Um, like all his clothes look like they're in very good condition looks clean like it does it doesn't look like he's been out and hasn't showered or washed or anything like that so that's interesting so maybe not homeless and the other thing is too on the namus um photo there's a photo of his jeans and there's a gloved hand pointing to what looks like a pen drawing on his jeans like the jeans are blue it looks like someone's drawn with a blue ballpoint pen like a grid lines looks like maybe a three oh yeah four it's an in just a weird drawing on his jeans so i it's wonder like a what's square in with a grid in it like you were yeah nervous it's doodling it doesn't look big like it's just a little on his jeans but it's interesting that you know yeah why i wonder and i know they have um i'm sure on the golden gate bridge too they've got cameras so i don't know why they haven't released an image of his face before um i mean maybe it was too far away just crappy I also read that he has a large sur surgical scar going down on his sternum and he's got a large surgical scar on his left arm. Of course he so does. That <laughs> <laughs> so he has the scars, but, yeah, interesting. 
like a pre rest I can never say the word pre resequit for being prerequisite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I try to say words I can't say. Do you want to talk about the the good news story? Since yeah. we'll give you guys one with a resolution to leave you <laughs> satisfied. So even I, I know that we were talking about kind of when do you stop investigating such an old case? But there's a good news story from June this year about a very long term John Doe. In 1963, a two-year-old child was found dead in Oregon, um, and it was classed as Oregon's oldest unidentified case before it was solved this year. A man was fishing at Keen Creek Reservoir on July 11, 1963, and he snagged what he thought was a bundle of blankets, but when he kind of unwrapped it, inside was the fully clothed body of a boy, and they never were able to figure out who this child was. Someone had put the boy, wrapped the boy in wire and attempted to weigh the body down. And they called this doe the boy in the bundle. This year, he was finally identified as Stevie Crawford, a child who had been missing from New Mexico. The body of that little boy was buried in a grave at Medford's Hillside Cemetery. But in 2008, detectives exhumed the body and obtained DNA from a femur bone. They submitted it for matches. Nothing came back. Until now. A private company contracted to check family DNA with companies like 23andMe have confirmed a match. The body of that little boy has been identified as Stevie Crawford. We know he had family members in New Mexico who told detectives Stevie had Down syndrome, and his mother returned from that trip years ago telling family members, you won't have to worry about Stevie anymore. She has since died. Detective Fagan has retired, but the headstone with the inscription that reads, Baby Doe, name known only to God, has always haunted him. Tonight we know Baby Doe is a little boy named Stevie Crawford. May he rest in peace. In 2007, Jackson County Sheriff's Office Detective Fagan uncovered 11 boxes marked old sheriff's cases and they started to go through it and then they stumbled across the case of the then unidentified Stevie Crawford. The uh, special investigator, Jim Tattersall, spoke to Oxygen and he said, I feel we are very fortunate in this day and age that we have DNA databases and samplings because without it, we wouldn't have found out about Stevie. He said the case went cold quickly because it was right around the time of Kennedy's assassination. There were a lot of other priorities in the country. I hate to say it, but it kind of slipped through the cracks. So they finally took DNA from this poor little doe in 2008. There were no matches, though, and it stayed cold. A recent tip came through the sher- came to the sheriff's office though through Facebook Messenger. They have like a made- tip through Facebook, like I know. <laughs> After all these years, I shouldn't be shocked though because people still try to like <laughs> message me, and I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> what should I do about this crime? I'm like, we don't know. Call the police. Like, call the police. <laughs> um, they haven't said though what the tip was on Facebook, which I would be interested to know. But Sheriff Nate, Nate Sickler contacted the medical examiner and with the help of Oregon State's Police's Human Identification Program Coordinator, Dr. Nikki Vance, they submitted the boy's DNA to Parabon Nanolabs. They processed the sample using phenotyping and genetic genealogy and a match was made to two potential siblings, one of them a half-brother in Ohio. The half-brother shared the same mother as the unidentified child, and he told police that he had a young brother with Down syndrome who disappeared from New Mexico. Upon further investigation, a birth certificate was discovered, and after 58 years, the Keen Creek baby doe had a name, and Stevie Crawford, born 10 to 1960. 
They haven't, though, said whether Stevie's death is still being investigated as a homicide or if any further charges are going to come from, I guess, the identification. Clearly it was a homicide. I guess. Or at least, like, disposal of a body. Yeah, Yeah, what what is it? Yeah, of a corpse or whatever they call it. So I wonder how he got from New Mexico to Oregon. Like, I've just looked it up because I'm not – I am familiar. I just didn't know exactly. But it says it's 1,283 miles now. So back then – That's really far away. A 20-hour drive, so it would take a long time. So I'd like to know more about how he got from New Mexico to where he was found. Yeah, that's crazy. I wonder, Mm. well, because they didn't really say much about, like, the mother or something. Like, maybe the mother ran away with him or something. Or I feel like two kids with disabilities also back then slept through the the cracks a lot easier than they do today. Yeah, I like how they're like, well, it was Kennedy's assassination, so we we couldn't do our job. Like, Mm. what? Crazy. I just feel like that was a cop-out. Definitely. Yeah, sorry. Don't have time to investigate this poor missing disabled child. We'll just focus on... Let's just put it in the old sheriff case box. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm going to call this episode. (laughs) It's a good outcome for his family, maybe, or anyone who wondered where he'd been, so... Seems like no one was really wondering. No, it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. So I think that's it for John Doe cases. If you've got any other interesting ones that you want us to cover in another episode, let us know. Yeah, I like talking about these. Yeah, I find it interesting. I like I I personally also find, well, I found in this case the one the man who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I find he's probably the most fascinating out of all of them. Yeah, you could just think of so many different scenarios and all of his sweatshirts. Why was he wearing eight layers? Why did he have 12 sweatshirts <laughs> in July? Crazy. And that's, yeah, like why were they all American and, um, you know, San Francisco? They were all kind of touristy shirts. Not all of them. A lot of them were touristy yeah. shirts. Fascinating. All right. Well, as usual, all the pictures and stuff will be up on blogs blog about them at truecrimesocietyblog.com and all the info all the links all that and make sure to follow us on instagram because we'll post some little polls about the cases and things like that and our facebook page and our forum make sure you check all those out if you want to discuss anything with anyone and if you haven't yet leave us a good we didn't beg for reviews yet this episode leave us a good (laughs) review Tell your mom. Have your mom listen. Have your mom leave us a good review. We got some nice ones. Two of them this week. One's from Gabrielle. It says, I consider myself to be a true crime podcast nerd, but this is my favorite one. After joining the Facebook group, I started listening to the podcast and now I've binged every episode. I love Stephanie and Olivia. It's clear they do thorough research and I love their commentary on cases. I get so excited when a new episode comes out. Can't wait for the new episode. And then someone else wrote, I won't read their name because it's just a bunch of letters, but thank you. It says, I love Olivia's accent and Stephanie's voice is great too. <laughs> love the back and forth between these two ladies. And Stephanie only swears occasionally. Haha, <laughs> keep them coming. <laughs> what does that mean? I, one of my coworkers was like, I didn't realize you swear so much. And I was oh. like, do I? I was like, I think I th- it's just when I'm annoyed by something. I thought it was, um, well, it is funny to me because I made a post on the Facebook page this week and it was a horrendous case it was about a 12 year old girl who got pregnant to a 24 year old man right and they yeah. they they thought nothing was wrong they family threw a baby shower for them and 
anyway, they only the man got arrested for rape when they went to the hospital to have the baby. So anyway, there was all oh this. You can imagine. You can imagine the discussion. It was. <laughs> it was interesting discussion. Anyway, someone was using was swearing and saying fuck in the comments, and someone else wrote. I think the issue here is the use of the F word. <laughs> That's the issue. Here. I was like, is this? And I wrote, I said, this is not the issue here. <laughs> oh my God. It's funny how some people, like, you know, it's fine, whatever. You, you, you can be offended by whatever you want. But in a case like that, that is not the issue. <laughs> yeah. That, that's crazy. I'm sad I missed that. There's your weekend sorted. Go back and read the comments. <laughs> yeah. I do swear occasionally when I'm like, <laughs> it's when I'm like, what the fuck? That's when I feel the need to swear. And there's many times we're talking about things where you're just like, what is happening? (laughs) But anyways, if you want us to read um, something you said on the podcast, leave us a good review and we'll read it on the podcast. Or leave us something, send us a funny message. I don't know, do something interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Send us something interesting. Also, someone, just one, I know, keep going off topic. Someone messaged us on Instagram last night and sent their ring doorbell video. You guys should go and check it out. Um, It's crazy. They had a man knock on the door, and he's like, are you sure? Are you certain? And then he told the woman inside that he wanted to rape and murder her. Yeah. So if you find things that are true crime related that everyone will find crazy, send them through. We like to get the messages about those things. If you have something that will give us nightmares and upset us, (laughs) please send it our way, and we'll do a (laughs) podcast about it. That'd be fun. Just do, like, an episode about weird shit or scary stories like true crimey stories people have sent us yeah that would be good all right well that's it for this episode we will see you guys next time peace out see ya bye